You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT LP, Davis, California. And that music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter on a bright, beautiful, sunny, but cold Davis day. Wait a minute. It's cold again, Don. What happened? According to the Weather Service, it is 41 degrees right now as we are preparing this broadcast, going up to a high of only 55 degrees today. Now, I want to emphasize that we do the broad, we, we record the show the day before. It's Wednesday, February 23rd, 2022. Thursday, February 24th, 2022, we will have gone through the coldest temperatures to date for this winter. (laughs) Okay, so we are going to discuss prospectively something that you'll be listening to retrospectively, which is a little challenging because they keep fluctuating a little bit at the weather service to just how cold it's going to get Tonight, or technically, I should say, first thing tomorrow morning. But this is very important. It's only 41 degrees right now. It's going to be 55 degrees today, Wednesday. Thursday morning, the day of the broadcast, they now tell us that in Davis, it will get to 27 degrees. They're telling us that in Dixon, it will get to 26 degrees. And they're saying clear then frost, which is putting it mildly. It's then going to be sunny. So this is the good news. It's, you know, we're clear and sunny, and it's going to get up to 56 degrees on Thursday as you listen to the show. Thursday night again, freezing weather. Current warning is, freeze warning for the region is that Friday morning, Thursday night, Friday morning, will be 29 degrees. That's in the Davis area, 28 degrees in Dixon. That's a pretty critical temperature threshold for a lot of plants. So we'll come back to that in a moment. That's it. Those two mornings are going to be the coldest. Friday will then get up to 60 degrees, nice and sunny. There will be frost Friday night, Saturday morning, getting down to about 32 degrees, less of a concern. Saturday, frost and mostly sunny, 62 degrees will be the high. And Saturday night is going to be, interestingly, mostly cloudy and only going to drop down to about 42. We actually have a chance of rain Sunday, a chance of rain Sunday night, a chance of rain, slight chance of rain Monday with areas of fog. Monday night, a slight chance of rain with patchy fog and low temperatures Sunday night, Monday night, and going on will be 42, 46 degrees. So we have a two-day, actually technically because it was close to frost this morning, three-day freezing weather event. And the National Weather Service has all those great bright red lines up there at the top of the weather forecast. Freeze warning in effect, freeze warning in effect, hard freeze warning in effect. And that is for tomorrow morning. Uh, this is going to do some damage. been talking to a lot of folks about what to do to protect their plants, whether they should be concerned about this plant or that plant. By the time you hear this, okay, we'll be through that. So then it will be, what do you do about the plants that were injured? Just backing up briefly, yes, we were covering things at our garden center. We were moving jade plants, calancoas, aloe vera, some of the tender succulents. Most of them are hardy, but some of the tender succulents, the translucent leaf taworthias, we're moving them inside. 
Uh, we're, we're bringing the citrus up closer to the building. We don't have a lot of citrus in stock at this time of year, but we got a few. I don't want to see leaf injury because I'm a retailer, so it affects their appearance and their quality. So we're bringing them closer to the building. Most of the other things that are in our garden center at this time of year, we're not real concerned about because we wouldn't be selling tender plants. But you as a gardener might have a hibiscus, geraniums, bougainvillea, young citrus, those would have benefited from being covered on Wednesday night, and they would still benefit from being covered Thursday night because we're going to be cold again on Friday morning. So this is a, a, a freeze. This is cold air being pulled into the valley behind that storm that just you know blew through here. The cold air just filled the valley, and the weather service was trying very hard to tell us where and how cold and all that kind of stuff. Finally settled in about 27, 28 degrees as the low at the bottom of this freeze episode. But cold weather, cold weather happening. And unfortunately, by the time this broadcasts, it will have already happened. But uh, again, airing Thursday, Thursday night, you probably should continue to cover those plants that are on the edge. Now, I don't mean need, uh, we got a lot of calls about this. A lot of fruit trees in bloom. Really nothing to be done about that, honestly. It's not practical to protect a peach tree or an almond or whatever. Uh, there was some question about how much injury this will do. The almonds are in full bloom in the Sacramento Valley right now. The most valuable variety, non-Perel, is at its peak of bloom and just passing that peak. The other varieties are still coming in in some cases. This is one of the reasons that you plant I have grown almonds, and when I planted my orchard, they said you plant four varieties, three or four varieties, and you stretch their bloom over as long a period as you can while still getting enough overlap for cross-pollination. And every year that we were in the almond business, uh, at least one of those varieties either got rained out or something happened that uh, caused that one variety not to set well. Well, the others are kind of your insurance. I did get a, a link from one of our listeners who uh, sent me some information and I looked into it a little more deeply. 27 degrees can cause as much as a 25% yield loss for almond growers. So we're hitting 27 degrees in some parts of the valley. I know the farmers down in the San Joaquin Valley are very concerned about this. So when you get down to 27 degrees, I'm a tree, I've got buds, I've got flowers, mm. I've got leaf buds, I've got, you know, twigs. What part of the tree or what parts of the tree will be damaged by that 27 degrees? The open blossoms. And this is the reason I'm not too concerned about this. I've got peaches in full bloom. I've got plums in full bloom. The flowers that are open this morning and tomorrow morning, you know, Wednesday morning, Thursday morning, as we're talking about this, will probably be injured, may not pollinate. And the bees won't be active anyway when it's that cold. You're not going to get bees out there pollinating flowers when it's 35, 40 degrees. Uh, so you'll lose the fruit that would have set on those blossoms. These are trees that are basically hardy here. So I'm not real concerned about them. There's still more blossoms to come. There'll still be blooms on their Saturday morning, Sunday morning, and so forth. The injury we're concerned about is direct tissue damage of the young growth or the leaves or the green wood of things like citrus, where we're growing a subtropical plant in a climate that's a little bit colder than is optimal for that plant to grow. I'm not concerned about my mature oranges, mandarins, things like that. I'm going to go out today and pick a whole bunch of the mandarins and bring them into the shop just in case the fruit might get injured. But the trees are fine. I'm not concerned about that. But one that I just put in, sure. I mean, I've got some young trees still in pots that I'm planning to plant this spring. I'm going to move them up closer to the house to give a little added layer 
layer of protection, get, get them out of the wind, get them where there's sunlight right now on that wall and that porch, and we'll keep them a little bit warmer. The young trees I'm concerned about, and those are the mostly the questions I've been fielding for the last day or two as this became obvious. What do we cover? How long does it need to stay covered? What do you cover it with? The very best thing to cover with is a kind of frost blanket that allows light in. Okay, the the things that are made for this purpose, seedling blanket, frost blanket, that allows at least some light transmission. It's best if there are no points of contact of that frost blanket or whatever else you cover with the foliage or the growth of the plant, because those points of contact will show injury. Uh, But in, in a pinch, it's better to do that than nothing at all. Overall, your simplest, if it's a young lemon, say, that you just planted last summer, stick a few stakes in the ground, drape some frost blanket over, staple it to the sticks or clothespin or whatever works to hold it on there because north wind has been a factor in this, so you don't want your frost blanket to blow away. Uh, between between frost episodes and leave it on there. It's okay to leave it on there during the day if it allows light in. And that enhances the greenhouse effect that it's providing and helping to protect the plant. If you've chosen to use a sheet or a blanket or an old parka or whatever you had around, well, that excludes light. So obviously it's best for the plant if you can go out during the day, take that off, let the plant be in the sunlight, put it back on late afternoon before we get back into the cold event again. So it's better if you're covering it with something that allows some light to penetrate. In a pinch, though, anything will do. Best not to have any points of contact if possible. Now, for those of us who are old timers and have old Christmas tree lights, not those twinkly ones, but the old big bulbs, is this a time to go string them up in in your citrus tree? A small tree. I mean, again, the bigger trees I'm not concerned about. If you've got a big old Meyer lemon with all 500 fruit on it out there, the fruit that is on the edge in the outer part of the tree exposed to the sky could be injured because it itself is losing heat and you'll get tissue damage on the peel, which can lead to tissue damage inside. And that wouldn't be a huge issue, except it releases those bitter compounds that make the fruit, you know, the, the flesh unpalatable somewhat. So it would be best if you're really concerned to go out before the major freeze event happens, which is to say, if you're listening to the show now, yesterday, <laughs> pick a bunch of that fruit, but also, Citrus growers know that that injury then becomes a progressive thing. So even if it's the morning after and you had some injury last night and those fruit are on the upper part of the plant, pick them, squeeze them, use it quick. Use that, you know, even freeze it if you have to. The longer the juice sits in the fruit or particularly once you've squeezed it, just sits, you'll get more of the bitter compounds released. So get them out there, use them, freeze it, you know, freeze the juice if you want to do that. And uh, I I don't think you need to strip the tree or 27, 28 degrees is going to do some harm to the fruit, but particularly the fruit that's on the outside of the tree. This is where some varieties, I've got a bunch of different varieties of citrus and you look at the tree, a lot of them like the Owari Satsuma Mandarin, although they're done now, but most of their fruit is sheltered in the foliage. Meyer lemon, by comparison, has so much that a lot of it is right out in the open, uh, on the open part of the canopy. That would be the fruit that I would make an effort to pick if you're concerned about it. My guess is, that, uh, again, with cold injury, it's how cold and for how long. This is a how cold issue, not a how long issue. 1990, when we had a major freeze in the Sacramento Valley, all over California, it went on for over a week. And the damage continued day after day after day. Uh, this is two days. Very sharp frost, cold, until going to do some injury, and then it's going to warm up, relatively speaking, relatively quickly. So the injury will be short and sudden, and then we'll be talking next week, I'm sure, about what to do with the plants or about the plants that were injured. 
Okay, so we're going to have a freeze. Hey, Don, does that mean it's going to kill off all my weeds and I don't have to worry about going out there when I didn't weed them yet? Oh, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't if, it be great? Wouldn't that be great if, uh, if this kind of weather would have that nice bonus? So it'll kill off some Ed's insects. straw. That's my big one. <laughs> <Ed's> straw. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not going to kill that because the weeds, and a lot of questions came in about, for example, uh, winter vegetables. And in general, your brassicas or coal crops, broccoli, cauliflower, all that stuff are fine. This kind of temperature isn't going to harm them at all. Let us, at the worst, you might see some leaf injury. I don't think at these temperatures you'll even see that. I did get a question about peas. And twice in the years that I've lived here, I've had a great stand of garden peas going back before I had such a problem with white crowned sparrows. And it was going great and freezing weather hit and the pea vines were killed, uh, you know, killed down to the stem. And then they had to completely start over and I didn't actually get a crop that year. So if you have some extra frost blanket and you're already covering your lemons and whatever, if you have some peas, it might have been a good idea to cover them yesterday. <laughs> it might still be a good idea to cover them tonight. Sorry for the delayed broadcast. But that's the way this works. So <laughs> if you want more information, there's a Davis Facebook group, Gardeners and Homesteaders in Davis, I think it's called. I went ahead and posted a long comment in there about what to do and all that kind of thing. So if you're in the Davis area, you're on Facebook, you can join that group and check it out. I do participate there periodically. Okay. Okay. So talking about bed straw, there yeah. is a, an article that I have in front of me now that is, says dealing with bed straw, also known as cleavers, Velcro weed, or any another of any number of other common names. This is a species of gallium. Mm-hmm. It might be native. It's considered edible, but it can quickly overtake a whole garden bed. I'm yeah. going to adjust that statement. It can take your entire yard. <laughs> so this is a weed. Um, let's just jump right into this one. There's a, a homeowners group, I guess you'd call it a neighborhood association in West Davis that's dealing with this in one of their common areas. And uh, they are in the process, the unpleasant, painful process right now of the physical removal of it as it's beginning to enter its reproductive phase. And so their question for me was pretty simple. In, in summarizing, what can we do to make this less of a problem in the future? And uh, I get a lot of questions about this particular weed. You know, 20 plus years ago, I almost never saw this plant. It was not common in this area. It's called bed straw is the most common name I know for it, but there's a bunch of others. You can look it up. What's interesting is that the genus Galium, G-A-L-I-U-M, also includes a very cute garden perennial that doesn't reseed called sweet woodruff a lovely plant. It's got a nice scent to it. It's actually used for a particular type of wine to flavor a particular type of wine. It's a nice shade garden garden ground cover, I guess is what I would describe it as. And it looks a lot like bed straw. Um, it doesn't spread and it's a lovely plant. So let's not, let's not blame it for the problems you're having with this particular species of galium. Starting about 15 years ago, this started showing up And I mean, really showing up and on my own property, I'd never had it. I've been here since the mid 1980s. I've never had this. And then a little bit of it came in somewhere, probably on my jeans or something. That's the way it spreads itself. Next thing I knew it was there. And then it was over there, probably on the dog or the squirrels or whatever. And pretty soon it's on many parts of my farm. And as with many weeds, I monitor to see, is this problem getting worse? Or is it just becoming part of the general mix of the population? It was getting worse. No question. This is not something that was just going to be an okay part of, all right, that's grasses and mustard and bed straw. No, it was climbing up over the grasses and mustard. It was running up through my rose bushes. It was climbing up chain link fences and becoming extremely annoying. And as you know, if you've pulled it, it can cause skin irritation. And those 
seed f- structures and seeds can stick to, will stick to your gloves, your, the hair on your hand, <laughs> your pants, your dog who's out there helping you and will go everywhere. So it has spread vigorously uh, throughout California. If you post on any Facebook group, someone's going to jump in and tell you it's native. That's questionable. That's actually an open question. They don't really know if it's native. It's certainly worldwide. Uh, The other thing someone will certainly post is, oh, it's edible. You know, I'm sorry, but I don't know how much of this you plan to eat, but I don't think you'll eat enough to get ahead of it. (laughs) Okay, so this is useless information, but an interesting data point. Yes, it might be native. Definitely is edible, I guess. So uh, when I first discovered this this weed and figured I wanted to take it out, I started by just pulling the weed. And yeah. what I what I discovered is the structure of this plant is different than any other weed I've ever seen because as it grows, it puts down a root and it and it starts and there's this little like node or nodule or something just above the ground. And then it puts out the rest of the plant. If you grab the top of the plant and you pull, that little nodule will break off right there. And the, the, the bottom is still in there. It'll put out another plant right, you know, 20 minutes after you pull the, you pop oh, the top it. off, it's growing again. So in order, to, in order to get this, what I found I had to do was I had to get to the center of the plant where the, the, the root went down and then p- go down with my fingers down to the ground, pinch it and pull the thing out. Cause if you break it off below the node, you're fine. Right. If you just take the top off, it ain't going to work. And that's true of a lot of weeds. You need to know what the growing points are and whether they're likely to re-sprout. So with any weed, our question is what is this particular plant's adaptive strategy? How has it managed to become a weed? Is there something about its life cycle that makes it hard to manage in the garden and the landscape? There's something about how it reproduces, whether it's by seed or by, by from the rhizomes or from bulbs. I mean, those are all at things that make certain plants particularly difficult. Is it promiscuous uh, sexuality or is it asexual reproduction is one way to look at it. The timing of the germination, the vigorous period of growth, does it store energy for future growth cycles like that oxalis that's all over Davis, uh, the sour grass, as it's commonly called. Does it have the ability to compete in a vegetative cover? In other words, can it hold its own against ground covers you might have planted? In this particular case, one that I'll throw in is its kind of climbing growth habit. Can creep along the ground and suddenly climb up onto a rose bush, which is really annoying because roses have thorns and this stuff irritates your skin. There's a fun battle. And so, and finally, as you're just describing, are there a bunch of growing points that can re-sprout if you just kind of whack it down? And can we pinpoint what part of the growth cycle it will enable us to figure out how to manage it most efficiently and effectively. And this is the key thing you need to know about bed straw. It germinates over a very long period. Most of what was on my property came up with that heavy rain that we had in October. All right. And when a lot of things germinate, the first rains in, uh, in October will bring a whole bunch of winter growing weeds up. And it's one of them. Most of them have a fairly narrow temperature range in which they germinate. So they come up October, November, the grasses you're seeing, the mustards, things like that. And then if you mow them down, you can actually get a reasonable level of control. But bed straw can germinate in colder soil conditions than most other winter weeds. It can germinate December, January, even February. So those of you, perhaps commercial gardeners who are using a pre-emergent herbicide, for example, something that you put on the soil and water in in the fall to prevent, to kill weeds as they germinate, well, those typically have about a three-month 
residue or residual effect. And that'd be great, except that three months after you've applied it, bed straw can still germinate. So it can get past your current usage of pre-emergent herbicides in many cases. That long germination period gives it a major strategic advantage over a lot of other weeds. Um, where you have gotten good control of other winter weeds, Ben Straw would like to thank you for creating an open space for it to occupy. It's very well adapted to fill in and cover those areas after you've mowed or sprayed or whatever. And uh, so reducing the seed load by removing the plants now is pretty much all you can do February, March. But looking back at when it came up, I can tell you that there's a long period in the growth cycle of bed straw when it's very, very easy to control. The seedlings come up and they grow very slowly at first. By the end of October, they may just be a couple inches. By the end of November, they're just creeping across the ground very slowly. One second with a hoe at that stage will kill it because the hoe will go under the growing point, the, the, uh, as Lois was describing, and just one chop will kill that seedling. So in five minutes with a hoe, you can do the work that will take you hours in February if you do that work with a hoe back in October, November, or whenever the weeds, the bed straw starts to germinate. So just cutting up, go ahead. And you need to redo that whole thing because remember, they germinate at different times. So if you've done it in October, you're going to have to do it again in December. And people keep asking me about herbicides to use for it. So I will mention that, you know, the popular systemic herbicide does a very thorough job on it. Some of the top kill so-called organic herbicides uh, that are derived from soaps or acetic acid or things like that will also kill it when you apply very early. You know, if you get out there, well, it's just a little seedling in October, November, you can spray some of those materials as well. I'm, you know, I don't want to push those because they just burn the foliage. So they do require repeated action. They're just comparable, honestly, to chopping it off with a hoe, probably a little less effective. But uh, if you don't happen to have the the stamina, the strength, whatever, there's a bunch of reasons people can't use that kind of equipment. You may wish to look into that. If you do, please obviously very carefully read the labels and whatever it is you're using. And most of those top kill so-called organic herbicides are most effective on sunny days because they just strip off the protective layer on the leaf and the leaf is then fried by the sun. They can be very satisfying to use in that regard, but you typically haven't killed the growing point. This is the most important part. You're chopping it down now, February, March, you're pulling it out. This is a very unpleasant thing. Note where you are, note where you're doing this and monitor that area for seedlings during the early part of next rainy season and you can reduce your workload considerably. Those plants that you're dealing with in February sprouted several weeks prior and grew rather slowly at ground level until the longer days and the warmer temperatures came along and triggered them to enter the stage that you're dealing with now, where they're beginning to climb, grow vigorously, flower and seed profusely. Yes, mulch will help up to a point, three to four inches of arborist wood chips over a large area. This is particularly for this home, this uh, you know, neighborhood association. Get a tree service to dump a giant pile of their, you know, the chips of what they've just chopped down. Arborist wood chips are great. Three, four, five, six inches is absolutely fine. We'll smother the existing weed seed and we'll prevent those weed seeds from sprouting. But this is an important truism about weed management. Everything you do kills some types of weeds and inadvertently or intentionally, encourages other types of weeds. So you're always selecting for and against certain weed species. Several inches of mulch is great. Buries that whole seed bank of not just the bed straw, but all kinds of other stuff. However, 
bed straw weed that lands in the mulch now has the whole place to itself. <laughs> and this goes for any other weed as well. So it's very common for people to get all done and put on all this mulch and walk away and they come back a couple months later and there's little weeds popping up. There are weeds very well adapted to dropping the roots down through even just arborist wood chips in spite of the lack of nutrient status. Get down there, root in. Uh, even in, in the case of landscape fabric, they'll often grow right at the interface of the the wood chips in the landscape fabric. And they have, as I say, the whole place to themselves. So all of a sudden they flourish. Now they're very easy to remove at that stage. Again, a hoe, uh, when it's only three or four inches tall, will kill it instantly. Even hand pulling a month or so later is easier when it's just a handful of weeds in the wood chips. But it is not an absolute panacea. People are always looking for the magic spray that's going to kill them or the magic thing that's going to prevent them. The key is to have a hoeing party in <laughs> November and a follow-up hoe gathering in January to February, which will focus on the seedlings. The tops of the plants that got past those events should be chopped down before they go to seed. It is important to get them out even after it's, even when it's a hassle, because you're getting rid of the next load of seed. If I were scheduling work parties for this kind of thing, I'd have them monthly, November through February. Everybody would have a hoe that they would use to chop weeds. Uh, You can actually just leave them there when you do that, especially if it's sunny, dry, windy is even better. Just chop it off, it'll wither instantly. And then just go back and get them about a month later. And more mulch each time you do that is fine. Your best strategy in the long run with this weed or any other weed is to fill that void. There are weeds there because there's bare soil there. And nature, as we always like to say, abhors a vacuum. Something is going to fill bare soil. So you want plants that will grow and outcompete the weeds, which can be a challenge. But some things that will grow thick enough or deep enough, or you can manage them in a particular manner that keeps the weeds at bay. So for example, grassy ground covers, such as creeping red fescues seeded and and grown as a meadow, unmowed for the most part, or things like some of the sedges that you can read about online, uh, can be mowed every now and then. Well, when you mow, you're chopping off the non-grass plants, which often have difficulty re-sprouting. The grass will re-sprout. It's adapted to mowing, generally, as long as you mow fairly high. And once it gets a solid cover, not much comes through it. So you can use the grass to outcompete the weeds, and mowing can simply become your basic management strategy. And again, for those of you okay with this, non-grass weeds in grass are pretty easy to kill with selective herbicides as well. Uh, I would seed in, consider seeding into that area uh, with multiple seedings, three to four successive seedings until you get a really good cover, something like creeping red fescue if you're going to go this route. And that's earliest to do in the fall and the early winter. Late winter also works, although the watering is much more crucial. But in the long run, woody ground covers, rosemary, artemisia, our native salvias, our native artemisias, uh, things like that, that will, myoprum. I mean, you'll see these types of plants in the, in the UC Davis Arboretum, most botanical gardens. You'll see areas where there's large areas of low-growing, prostrate, woody plants, four to six inches deep. Nothing grows through them. <laughs> they, are, they will shade out and suppress the growth of most weeds. There's a handful, like field bindweed and some others, that can be still be problematic. But for the most part, these annual grasses and things like bed straw cannot grow through a solid cover of prostrate rosemary once it's fully established. The tricky part is that getting it established part. Some people like to put down landscape fabric, cut holes in it, plant into that, put mulch over the top, and be done with it. And that does work as long as you monitor and make sure those opportunistic weeds don't fly in and land and root in and, and destroy and become a problem. 
Uh, others I've taken to suggesting that to implement this strategy of ground covers to outcompete weeds. You plant the plants from large plants, quart size or gallon size. Spend more money on a bigger plant so you have a bigger root system. Put them in three to four feet apart. Carefully hand weed around those as part of your work party and do whatever it takes to suppress the weeds between them. And if it's something like our salvia clevelandia, one of our native salvias or an artemisia or the non-native Mediterranean plants like rosemary, they will, once rooted in, start to grow out. And within about a year or two, you should have a solid cover and your weed management should be considerably diminished at that point. Uh, the bottom line, though, is to know the weed strategy so you can develop your own strategy. That's the first thing. Note the timing, fall and early winter are typically really important times for dealing with this spring. By the time you're dealing with it now, those weeds are in their vigorous flowering reproductive phase and they're just chopping down a lot of biomass, basically. And that's important to do, but it's more work than you would have had to do if you'd done some of these preventive strategies. Prevention is easier, easier always than a remedial action that you have to take later in the season. Ultimately, you need to outcompete the weeds. Wow. Okay. One little question and yes. all that information. So just to be clear, what at what time or in what conditions does bed straw start dropping seed? Um, Mid-spring. And it goes very, a lot of these weeds go very, very rapidly from bloom to viable seed. That's an adaptive strategy that many weeds have. I mean, the list of adaptive strategies includes timing of germination, uh, ability to lie dormant in the soil for long periods of time, massive seed production, those are some of the worst, um, and, and their ability to outcompete other nearby seedlings. The key is if you see something you know is a weed flowering, it's probably just a couple of weeks away from the seed beginning to form and just a couple more weeks away from that seed being viable. So it's very rapid, typically from bloom to viable seed being scattered. And of course, in the case of bed straw, because it has that Vel Velcro-like seed, that then goes everywhere. So if you're on a team, I did a, a training session for weed managers from municipalities in the Bay Area. I said, one of the key things you need to implement when you've gone through an area like this before you leave the site, everybody check your clothing. Okay. Check your boots, check your socks, check your pants, check all your gear and take the seeds off because you don't want to become literally a weed vector taking the weeds from one place to another. That's one of the most common ways certain weeds disseminate is on clothing, fur, equipment, whatever. And so it's important before you leave the job site, everybody look at your gloves and pull off the 30 seeds that are on each glove, go down at your ankles and so forth, because those seeds are all over you. So it's important to, pre to prevent them from spreading from one site to another. Two questions. You said mid-spring, and this is Davis, California, and it oh. is the third week of February. Is this mid-spring? No, uh, in terms of seed distribution on bed straw, that would be end of March, typically early April, depends on the year. But uh, mid-spring, by our definition, is early spring on the calendar. <laughs> Good question. Definitely freezing in February. <laughs> and then you said, um, pick off the seeds. Now, I don't want the seeds in my yard. I just got rid of a bunch of stuff. So uh, do I put them in my compost pile? Do I put it in the in the landfill trash. What do I do with those seeds? I don't trust landfill compost manufacturers to get the compost pile routinely and reliably up to a high enough temperature. So I put them in the dumpster personally. In theory, 
if you have your own compost pile and you know with your compost thermometer that the interior of that compost pile and you're turning it regularly, that the interior is getting 150, 160 degrees, which is really cool. It actually does that. Uh, then you're probably pasteurizing those seeds. But I've seen the way a lot of compost piles are operated and a lot of these composting operations. We uh, we had a customer who brought in a whole lot of the city's free compost way back when. And in that yard, we dealt with field bindweed, bed straw, Bermuda grass, and nut sedge, all imported in free landfill compost. Arborist wood chips don't have that problem. They're just chopped up trees. So it's safe to use them in almost any situation. I'm always concerned about free compost that hasn't actually been fully composted. And to get to your question, those would go in my dumpster. Okay, let's move on to a, another question. Uh, Tamar writes to us and says, hi, Don and Lois. We planted two new trees in the backyard last year, a peach and a nectarine. These are the first fruit trees we've ever planted. They've started to bloom, so I searched the Redwood Barn website for any how-tos and noticed talk of dormant spray to prevent leaf curl in early February. You emphasize that it's not necessary as it doesn't really affect the fruit. We probably won't spray them with copper, so these questions are more just out of curiosity. One, we haven't had much rain in a while and none in the forecast for the rest of February, so is leaf curl a lower risk this season? And two, given that we already have flowers and leaves opening and the trees aren't dormant anymore would it be too late to spray anyway so there you yeah, go i'm getting that question a lot just for uh, to clarify in our area uh the conditions for leaf curl infection of the blossom and fruit we don't have those conditions typically our temperatures here are well above the optimal from the from the diseases standpoint the optimal point of infection people at higher elevation i know we've discussed this a year or so ago when one of our listeners who's at a higher elevation commented and i agree that if your spring is cooler and it's rainy uh your higher likelihood of peach leaf curl actually affecting the blossoms and the fruit here usda zone 9 here in sunset zone 14 by the time we get to the blossoms usually um we are out of that range. It's really well understood the whole life cycle of peach leaf curl and what it requires. It requires rainfall to splash from point to point. So if there's no rainfall as the leaf buds are breaking and the new leaves are emerging, it's very unlikely that we'll see much leaf curl. And my observation in the years when I have intentionally not sprayed my peaches and nectarines is that if it's relatively dry when they're leafing out, I have very little leaf curl, sometimes as little as five or 10% leaf infection. If it's rainy when they're leafing out, I have a whole bunch of leaf curl, 80% or more leaf infection. Just want to point out that in either case, it outgrows it here within four to six weeks. We'll have secondary infection if it rains again, sometimes even a tertiary infection, but usually nothing that really even weakens the plant. Honestly, if it's a well-watered plant and you know healthy plant, it outgrows leaf curl without any difficulty. So I don't think the peach leaf curl sprays are absolutely essential here in the Sacramento Valley. Uh, the studies that I saw indicating yield effects from peach leaf curl were mostly done up by Anderson, Redding, places, you know, north part of the valley where it is colder during the period of bloom. I will say that 2022 is unlikely to be a serious leaf curl year because we are so dry. And even with this little bit of possible rain they're talking about, it requires pretty sustained steady rainfall for a peach leaf curl to infect. We usually have that to some degree as they're leafing out, but we're not having it this year. And my observation during drought years is leaf curl is very minimal. Also to the second question, yes, in my opinion, it's too late 
here, once there's bud color, once you see the flower buds beginning to open or the leaf buds beginning to push, it is too late for the dormant spray, the copper spray that we use to be effective to prevent leaf curl anyway. So at this point, people would be spraying some trees, apricots, plums, perhaps for brown rot, not likely to be a huge problem this year either, but they wouldn't be spraying for leaf curl, at least not with any effectiveness. Um, two questions. One is the the spraying of this, I mean, the the rainfall that's splashing the stuff around. Mm -hmm. If you were to take your hose and water your tree manually by hose, would you be doing the same thing that the rain might have yeah. done? Yes, yes. So sprinkling your tree to prevent freeze damage could encourage leaf growth. <laughs> okay, here's an interesting study that was done in Po Valley of Italy where they found that uh, if you exclude the splashing rain, you can almost completely stop peach leaf curl. And I know this was tested. I remember talking with Chuck Ingalls, who was the farm advisor in Sacramento, who was real, real involved in the Fair Oaks Community Garden. They actually tested this. I'm, I'm, I know this sounds odd, but if it's threatening actual rain and your tree is small enough, if you put a tarp over the tree while it's raining, you can prevent leaf curl. Weird, but true. Because you're preventing making one of those umbrellas like you put on your <laughs> table. Sure, there you go. I mean, it'd have, to be, it'd have to be small enough. You'd have to be training it properly. I haven't tested this myself, but they did test it by just, you know, testing trees in greenhouses during the rain and the same thing in containers outside. And it almost completely controlled the leaf curl. Now, this is not a real practical solution. Most people can't cover their trees, but it's true. It requires splashing rain over a certain period of time at a certain temperature for infection. We almost always have that when the trees are leafing out. Not this year, but almost always do. Uh, so, you know, if this is a practical option for you, it literally does work. Uh, it's, not the high, it's not the high humidity. It's not the moisture status of the air. It literally has to splash from point to point. Interesting fact. Most commonly what we're doing is we're taking copper, which is a metal, obviously, an element, and it's toxic to bacteria and fungus and relatively low toxicity to us. And so we're spraying the tree right before that spore might land so that the spore will land on, on a copper-coated leaf or leaf bud instead of an open leaf bud, and the copper will kill the spore. That's what you're doing. If you spray and then it rains and the copper was still wet and it rained and it washes off, then it's less effective, so it's best to spray again. If it's really dry, my guess is probably the copper is not doing much of anything because those spores are going to have difficulty spreading anyway. So this would be a good year if you didn't want to bother. Uh, it's too late, probably, and I don't think it would make much difference anyhow. That's here in the Sacramento Valley. Got to remember, we got listeners in other places. So, Okay. And the other thing, I, I, I thank you so much for sending us the pictures. They're beautiful. It's really nice to see pictures coming in with these questions. So yeah. thank you for that. I do notice that there are two trees. One is a pale pink and one is a, a bright red. Yeah. And the pale pink tree has a transport stake tightly tied to the trunk of the tree. Yeah. And if that were me, I would be out there cutting that thing off so it wasn't um, making my tree not move as much. Yeah, Don can talk why you should or shouldn't. Yeah, any tree that's being held with a nursery stake that's tied rigidly to the trunk should have that stake removed as soon as you possibly can. It uh, It is keeping the trunk from moving, and when the tree is not moving, it's not thickening. So very important to take that off as soon as it is practical to do so. If a tree still needs to be stabilized, then you put in two stakes typically on either side, one on either side. We go east 
and west side of the tree here because our strongest winds come from the north and the south. We don't want the tree slamming into the stakes during windy spells. Other than that, you want to tie it mostly up at the point of the first branches and uh, just let it move some still. It needs to still, it needs to move, but you're trying to stabilize it to keep it from blowing over. Most commonly, by the way, fruit trees that you buy don't actually need to be staked. Uh, they may have done it in the nursery for one reason or another, but typically they don't need staking once they're in your yard because they're, they're low branching. They haven't been trained up into that funny lollipop shape that a lot of trees are in when, when you buy them. And uh, so typically you don't need to stake them. But yeah, take that nursery stake off of there. Great pictures, by the way. Okay. And since we do have such great pictures, um, I want to talk to you about how to train this new little tree. I'm looking at it and it looks like just a few inches off the ground, there's a side shoot coming out. Yes, I and when- I would, yeah, let's stop right there. I would look closely at that because it might be coming from below the graft. Um, I don't think so, but I do see one that is coming from below the graft. So that's a rootstock that needs to be removed. That's real important to do that whenever you see that happening. That's on the red tree, Yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, this might be a good time to decide how tall you want to make it, how how whether or not you want to be able to pick it from the ground. I strongly encourage that it is so much easier to do Um, and to figure out whether or not you're going to need to get any equipment underneath towards the trunk, because some of those side shoots are going to make it when it gets big, you're going to have like a a multi-stemmed tree with the trunks a moat on the ground. Yeah, well, you're, to summarize that, uh, the question you have to answer for yourself in any yard where you're growing fruit trees is how low is it okay to have branches and how high do you want the tree to go? This tree has essentially been untrained, which is great. You can now look up modified central leader training, which is my absolute preferred method of training fruit trees. This year, you're going to take Oh, half or more of the branches that are on there off. And I know that's hard to do, but it's better for the tree in the long run. You're going to take the tree down to one of them. And I always like to leave it up about four to five feet. So that'll become the highest branch on the tree. I did just answer this question for someone else. So just to repeat for those who aren't real strong on botany, that branch placement will not change. The tree grows at the tip. It doesn't, the branch never gets any higher. So, you know, I, I know that sounds very elemental, but it's something not everybody understands. So you're going to choose the permanent positions of three to four major limbs that are going to be what they always call the scaffold limbs of this tree. And you're going to start removing the others. And that's the modified central leader training technique. I am not a fan of vase training, but you're welcome to read about it. Uh, it's more of an orchard approach where everything is branched low. That's great until you get a year with a heavy crop and then uh, you don't thin them enough. And one of those, like, let's say three major limbs of the tree splits out. And that's usually kind of the beginning of the end. Modified central leader training, you don't have that problem. So take a quick look at that picture. I think it's a great illustration. And uh, you're going to bring it down a foot or so to an existing lateral branch. You're going to remove ultimately all except three to four of the other branches, well-placed up the trunk, six to 12 inches apart, radiating away from each other if possible. And you're going to decide how low a branch you're willing to accept on a fruit tree. I like low branches on fruit trees because you can walk up and pick them quite easily. But if you have a garden, landscape, need to mow, things like that, usually you want to get some of those up a little bit higher. Those are your choices. But the main thing is you still get to decide the structure of this tree in the long run. Modified central leader are the words to Google. Yeah, my plum tree, I wish that I had um, done a little different training when it was young. But, you know, that was 20 years ago. And I didn't know then what I do know now. 
What I find is that it's now wide enough and big enough that if I had let those low branches come in at, you know, three or four feet, I, to, I wouldn't be able to get in there to the trunk. Yeah. And this way I can duck under the outer branches and I can really walk up to the trunk and deal with the inside of, of the fruit too. Anyway, um, can we please post the picture of the red flowered one? on the website so people can go and look at it and see what we're talking about. Yeah, good example. And this red flowered peach, by the way, I have uh, one that's very much like this. It's one of my absolute favorite landscape trees that happens to produce wonderful fruit. It's called Red Baron. It's a low chill peach. So those of you listening in Southern California, it only needs a couple hundred chilling hours. It has beautiful red semi-double flowers over a very long period of time. The tree is visible from a couple hundred yards away when it's in bloom. It's really quite stunning. And because of that long bloom season, it actually sets over a longer period than most other fruit trees, most other peaches anyway. And you can pick them over a surprisingly long period. I've I've monitored this year because I really like Red Baron and I like to talk it up. It's a great backyard peach. Um, I was picking peaches from that tree for over two weeks. Most other peaches, it's like five days. You got to get them done. This one, actually, you can pick over a surprisingly long period of time. The one downside of Red Baron, it's a wonderful flavor, really, really good flavor. It is a soft peach. It's the kind where you pick it and eat it right away. I've learned that if I'm going to give them away, I pick them be- a couple of days before they're ripe and I let them sit on the counter and then I carry them in because if you wait till it's fully ripe on the tree, the only thing you're going to do with that peach, sad to say, is eat it right there under the peach tree. <laughs> you won't be sure. Oh, exactly. <laughs> so, so including with your your hoedown all winter long, your hoedown party. Then you can in the summer you have a peach eating party. Right, just stand there and pick them right off the tree. I, it is one of my favorites. Although, if you want to freeze peaches, make pies from them, it's not the best choice for that. You better leave room for another variety. But if you've got a focal point for a flowering tree. Red Baron is spectacular, and it has wonderful fruit as well. Okay, great question. Great when picture. It, when does it flower? How long does it flower? It's flowering right now. It's been going on for about five or six days, and it should be blooming. It will be at its peak of bloom in the next couple of days, and we'll be continuing for at least a week afterwards. So I went back and looked. I've taken pictures of blooms on my Red Baron over almost a three-week period. Most of my other peach trees, it's, wow, look at that tree. It's an incredible full bloom, and you get a picture. Interestingly, that, that's an issue for things like a freeze. Or rainy weather or, you know, bad weather in a three-day period can make a big difference on a tree that has a narrow bloom period. Well, Red Baron will just still be blooming after the freeze and still be blooming after the rainstorm. So I just happen to think it's a great choice for a lot of folks in California, probably elsewhere as well. So if some of the flowers have set fruit before the freeze, will the freeze damage those little baby fruit? 27 degrees, that's a very good question, actually. We'll find out. We'll get back to you on that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we'll be talking oh, okay. next week or so about the damage that did occur. So, all right. So since we're talking about trees that flower, let's talk about what trees are flowering in February that have white flowers. And uh, so, so I think it's almond flowering pear and Taiwan cherry. Is that right? Those are the first ones we talked about in a previous show. Almonds are in full bloom in the Sacramento Valley right now. It's absolutely gorgeous. If you want to take a drive and come see what it looks like when thousands of acres of trees have their white blossoms on them, it's quite lovely right now. The flowering pear we mentioned last week, that's Pyrus kawakami. 
Uh, it's distinguishable from the other types of flowering pears by the more open, spreading, rounded growth habit. They start blooming in Northern California in December. I've had people almost every year, hey, have you seen those trees blooming? What do you think of that? Is this a weather thing? No, that's what that particular one does. That's Pyrus Kawakami. Pyrus clariana, the Bradford pear and all of its cousins, have just started to bloom now, February 23rd, 24th. They're coming into full bloom around Davis. Much more upsweeping growth habit, very upright when they're young and then sort of uh, oval as they age. Some varieties have a slightly more open growth habit. These are terrible trees that none of us recommend for a bunch of reasons. There's all kinds of things that go wrong with all the varieties of Pyrus calariana. They've fallen off of every available, every recommended tree list that I can think of, but they are blooming now and people do ask about them. So they're very pretty. They're, they're covered with white blossoms. They're an all at once thing. They're all at once for a week and then they're pretty much done. Whereas that other one blooms for a much longer period. Also blooming, at least as of a few days ago, were the beautiful tulip tree magnolias, Magnolia sulanciana, which uh, has a narrow bloom window. It's about seven days. They're spectacular when they're in bloom. And then they open out and look like giant tulips and they fall to the ground and they look very pretty with all those big petals underneath them. And that's that. Uh, there are a fair number of these in the area, particularly in Capitol Park in Sacramento. Some very old, beautiful specimens there. Fair number around Davis. So nobody notices them except now. Suddenly they're blooming. They go in, they want to talk about them. I should mention these are not particularly drought tolerant. They're a tree that does need irrigation through the summer. So if you're going to plant them, they should be near an irrigated garden, turf, flower border, something like that. They would prefer that than being in a low water part of the landscape. Well, there's another kind of magnolia, isn't there? That it's spider magnolia or something like that? That's blooming Our now. There's a bunch of them. And the most common one is the saucer magnolia, sometimes called the tulip tree, which is magnolia sulangiana. And the form with the more pink flower on one part of the petal is the variety alexandrina. And that seems to be by far the most commonly planted. There's a bunch of others, a bunch of other flowering deciduous magnolias. One that's more like a bush that has narrower petals and greater profusion is the star magnolia, magnolia stellata, which is pretty widely planted around the Davis area. These are not the great big evergreen southern magnolia that you'll see in rolling lawns on estates or in parks. Those are here too. Uh, people do have them in Davis. They're enormous trees and the roots are surprisingly aggressive. So they're not something I recommend for a typical residential setting, but they're cool for a park or place like that. But they're also not drought tolerant. Magnolias in general need a lot of water. So if you're choosing to put one in your landscape somewhere, be aware of that. Make sure they'll have a reliable source of water even during drought episodes because they're really struggling where people shut off the water. Magnolias are blooming now. Also a lot of fruit trees, uh, plums are in full bloom, pluots are in full bloom, some peaches and nectarines, pears and so forth are all blooming here in the Sacramento Valley. The earliest, earliest, earliest of the flowering cherries are beginning to show some color. We mentioned the Taiwan cherry last week, which is the real red one. We're about a week or two away from the rest of the flowering cherries really coming in. And the other thing that's in full bloom with those beautiful pink flowers are the flowering plums. Okay, so moving on, I'm going to intersperse one of my own personal problem questions, as I usually do, and surprised on. <laughs> uh, I have a plum tree, as you all know, and I've, I've kept it not terribly tall, but every year there are points at the top of the tree that just send up, shoot straight up six feet tall, little skinny whips of things. Got to get those cut off in order to 
well, I didn't get them done this year. <laughs> the entire plum tree is blooming, including these little whips of, of blossoms all the way up now. Now, what am I going to do to the tree if I cut them now or if I let them go and don't cut them till fall? What, what, what are my options and what would you recommend? Understanding that I got to find a teenager to climb the ladder. <laughs> yes, yeah, no more ladders for any of us. Um, yep. Yeah, plums, like many other fruit trees, send up these, we call them water sprouts. They're extremely vigorous shoots. They will eventually form flowering wood and, and fruit if you want that. And so you can turn a plum into a hedge if that's your inclination. Uh, yes, you can prune them. I want to make this really clear. You can prune almost any time. I mean, there's consequences to different times of pruning. And there's certain cases like apricots and cherries where we tell you don't prune these in the, in the rainy season, apricots or cherries, because of a particular disease problem. Eutypa in the case of apricots, bot rot in the case of cherries that can get into the pruning wound. So those you only prune in the late summer or fall. But it's also okay in the case of a lot of these to do some pruning in the spring. You know, if those branches, we, when we had a pruning service, we could never get all the jobs done when the trees were fully dormant. So it was very common for our crew to be out there pruning trees in full bloom, swatting bees away as they did um, and getting the job done. And it works fine. Wherever you're listening, you may wish to ask your local cooperative extension service or farm advisor, if there's any particular reason not to prune in bloom or in the rainy season for the species in your area, because this is somewhat regional in terms of the possible complexities of a disease getting into the pruning wound. They'll probably tell you not to prune apples or pears, for example, during fire blight infection season or something. There may be reasons for a particular case, but in general, you can prune a lot different times than most people thought. It's not uncommon at all for me to prune branches of a tree that's in full bloom or to go out and do more pruning on it after having pruned it in the winter and realizing, look at all those blooms. It's sunny. I'm going to get so much fruit load. I need to reduce that. Far easier, in my opinion, to prune it than to try and pull off individual fruit, which is most of us don't have the patience for. So you can go ahead and cut those now. You can wait till summer if you prefer, and you can go out there after the harvest and prune them. If you prune during the early part of the growing season, spring to early summer, wherever you cut, it's likely to sprout and grow. So if that's a desirable characteristic, go for it. If you wait till after it's fruited, and we get into mid to late summer, the tree has gone into what my pomology professors call the quiescent stage of dormancy. If you cut, it's alive, it's got leaves on it and all that kind of stuff, but it won't sprout and grow. So if you cut back a peach or a plum or a nectarine in August to September, you're just reducing its size and you're reducing the leaf area. So you're reducing its water use. So this can be a really simple way of reducing water usage in your yard and managing the size of the tree. And you know that if you do it then, July, August, September, the tree is not likely to re-sprout. I've had some that do. My neck to plum when I pruned it in July, re-sprouted. Okay, well, that was a bit of a hassle next year because I had all that kind of hedgy stuff I had to remove. But for the most part, usually it won't. Usually, especially August to September, it'll just stay cut. It'll stay pruned. And so that's a simple way to manage the size and also do a little structural work. Most people nowadays, now that summer pruning has really caught on, most people nowadays will do structural work in the winter when they can see the trees lay out better. In other words, see where branches are crossing and rubbing and where there's one that's going out at a bad angle, one that is at a narrow angle. And then in the summer, they'll just do size control, which is essentially almost hedge-like pruning. Both of those together are a lot easier than trying to do one all at once. Because you can go out there on an August weekend and do some pruning, 
I'm glad another weekend to do some more. Whereas in the winter, we're struggling in freezing weather or slippery, muddy soil to try and get the job done before the buds break. I suggest most people do structural pruning in the winter, if appropriate, not for apricots, not for cherries, but for your other deciduous fruit trees and size control and fruit management pruning in the late summer. Annie writes, I love your show. I've been listening to three years worth of date appropriate podcasts every week since I discovered it last fall. Now, that's a smart thing to do. Go back in our in our archives, which are there for the last 16 years, and you can pick out the right date. Anyway, uh, Annie says, I live in San Rafael. 94903 zip code in Marin County. I've been searching without success for a Cara Cara orange. I know there are huge restrictions due to quarantine about where any citrus can be shipped from or to. I would love to know what geographical areas of of California I can order citrus from. This is the second year of my search and I'm getting rather frustrated. My (laughs) husband often drives to Marysville for business. So if it's available somewhere between here and there, is it a possibility to pick up one on the way home? So she's asking for quarantine areas. Yeah, and I pulled up the map here. Uh, Looking for the quarantine map is the first thing you need to do. As you walk into a nursery, we are supposed to ask you if you're buying a citrus what's your zip code or it's something about where you're from. And this does come up with us periodically. There are, uh, let's see, I've got it up in front of me here, three quarantine zones in California and going to Marysville and coming back to wherever it was is not going to be a good plan. Yeah, that's not going to be a good plan. First of all, I should say this citrus availability is increasing, but it's been challenging for the last two to three years. Pretty good inventory coming on, but as in our case, I have three different growers. They're all telling me the crops are still light. They're willing to ship them, but they really would rather get some more heat, get some more growth on them. So there should be much better availability on citrus late March, April, May, and into the summer. Looking for them early when deciduous fruit trees are in nurseries. Citrus are evergreen. They're subtropical. They're not growing when it's cold. We might even see some cold injury to the new growth from the frost we're having right now because most of these nurseries have them right out in the open, maybe in a greenhouse. Hard to say. Uh, You'll do better looking for your caracara later in the spring and the early summer. So that's the first thing. If you want to look at the quarantine boundaries, California Department of Food and Agriculture, cdfa.ca.gov, cdfa.ca.gov, and just look for quarantine boundaries. And the quarantine is for the Asian Citrus Psyllid, P-S-Y-L-L-I-D. The P is silent. So if you simply go into the CDFA website and type in quarantine boundaries, ACP, you'll find this map and it'll show you where you can and cannot purchase citrus trees. And the reason for this is that we don't want people coming up from Southern California where the Asian citrus psyllid is fully infested and bringing trees into Northern California where it's either partially established or not established. This is one of the most simplest and really most effective methods of preventing spread of the vector for the disease that is potentially very threatening to citrus in California. So cdfa.ca.gov, quarantine boundaries for the ACP is what you want to look for. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRT LP 95.7 in Davis, California. <music> 